0: Good morning. Good morning. Um, my name is Luke. I'm one of the other elders uh, here um, at Life Church. Really good to be together this morning and um, particularly welcome if this is um, your first time, one of your first times, whether you're visiting, whether you're exploring, whether this is a place you call home. I, I pray that God would um, bless you and encourage you this morning. And we're going to continue in our series uh, in 1 Peter. So I've asked my friend Sarah to uh, read the passage to us, uh, and then we'll begin. So if you've got a Bible, we're in 1 Peter, chapter 2, from verse 11. Um, Otherwise, it will be on the screens, um, but let's hear the word of God together.
1: Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honour the emperor.
0: Thank you, Sarah. I wonder what you think of when I say the word pressure. Pressure, maybe you think of the exact pressure you need in your bike tires to get that optimum efficiency when you're riding. Maybe you think of the daily quotas of getting stock out of the warehouse or loads of laundry through the machine. Maybe you think of what must be the best song in Disney's Encanto, Surface Pressure. Maybe, maybe not. No, no one else an Encanto fan. You're all secretly Encanto fans, I know it. But Surface Pressure is what it's called. Yeah, I, believe me, I know the song. Don't question that Beth. No, um, so I wonder what you think of when I say the word pressure, because this morning we're gonna see that for Peter's readers, for Peter's fellow believers, they were living in a time where they lived under great pressure. The Christians that Peter were writing to were being mocked, they were being insulted, they were being lied about and reviled by their colleagues, by their neighbours, by their families, and sometimes even by their government. And why? simply because they were part of this weird new cult called Christianity. And so what were they meant to do under pressure like this? What were they meant to do under this kind of pressure? Well, that's what we're going to explore this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into what the passage said. Father, as we um, come to your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us. As I share what you've put on my heart by your Spirit I believe the scripture is saying to us, and that is true for all of us, I pray, as you see each of us individually, that you speak deeply into our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read from verse 11 and verse 12 again. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's the non Christians, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're four weeks into our One Peter series. Uh, And if you've been uh, at any of the last three weeks, you'll start to get a bit of a flavour of what Peter is saying in the letter. But here's a bit of a summary. Peter is saying to them, Dear Christians, There's all sorts of things you're going through right now, all sorts of suffering, but keep your eyes on Jesus. Hold on to him, your living hope. He encouraged them, you may remember, he encouraged them to think about the world in two key relationships, two foundational relationships. He said to the Christians, think about your vertical relationship, your relationship with God who he is, how he loves you, what he's done for you, how he has caused you to be born again through the resurrection of Christ. So he said, remember your vertical relationship. That's the most important one. But he also said, be aware of your horizontal relationship. That's what we looked at in chapter one, verses one and two. Your horizontal relationship, the fact you are exiles, or as this passage says, sojourners and exiles. You're people who, you might live in this world, but you don't belong to this world anymore. You might be resident here, but you have to get used to what it looks like to not just fitting in. And so Peter, over this last chapter and a half, has called the believers to live now in light of what's to come. To live now in light of eternity. But now Peter begins a new section. So from chapter 2, verse 11... Uh, Peter begins a discourse which will go through into chapter 3 and all the way through about halfway through chapter 4, where he starts with quite a general principle that we're going to look at this morning, and then he's going to apply it to different situations that his audience, the first century Christians, were in. He was going to apply it to their lives. And so while he has a new focus in this section and beyond, his foundation is exactly the same. How does he start? Verse 11. 11. He addresses them as beloved exiles. Just the same as the beginning of the letter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, they're beloved. They're loved by Peter, but much more importantly, they're loved by the Father. They're loved by the one who is the only one that really matters if he loves you. Beloved, but they're also exiles. They're also the ones who they're here, but they don't belong here. And that causes awkwardnesses. And so Peter, in some ways, is carrying on, as he started, the same foundation, But now his focus is different. And so what's his focus that we're going to be looking at this morning and actually we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks? Well, it's what I started with. The believers are under huge pressure from slander, from lies, from from people speaking uh, wrong about them, accusations and insults. Verse 12 says, There were those who spoke against them as evildoers. No matter what they were doing, people were were lying about them and saying that Christians, they're awful people. They're not to be trusted. They're dangerous. And so Peter's focus in this section is under pressure like that, how do we cope? Under pressure like that, how do we cope? Because when pressure comes, when the pressure comes, we're often tempted to do two things. One, we let the pressure hit us and it pushes us to fade into the background. But the other thing is we let the pressure come and we think, you know what, I'm going to fight back. And so we hit it. But Peter says, no, there's another way. And that's what we're going to look at. This life is full of pressure. And it's full of pressure particularly to fit in. I don't know if you've felt that. If you're someone who follows Jesus, I don't know if you've felt that. Actually, even if you're someone who hasn't followed Jesus, if anyone's been a teenager, (laughs) they know what it is to have pressure to fit in. And as Christians... Of any age, we live in a life where there is huge pressure to fit in. Why? Because as Christians, we're different. We are different to the world around us. Not We're not better, but we've been saved. We, we're called to something more. Peter makes that clear. He says, you're sojourners and exiles. You're, in other words, they're, they're people. He compares us as Christians to those who are foreigners living in a land that isn't their own. You're going to stick out. You, you, you're going to be noticeable. And the thing is... People do notice those who are different, don't they? And often people don't like it when people are different. Sometimes people might feel judged because you live differently. Sometimes people might feel offended that your belief system is different from their belief system. Sometimes it might be suspicious that you act in such a way that they can't quite explain in their own worldview. And so the reality is for us as believers, the more we stick out, the more the eyes start to fall on us, the more the comments start to increase and the more the pressure comes to just fade quietly into the background. When pressure comes, the temptation is just to give in, to fit in. And so some of us, we're tempted to conform. We're tempted to say, you know what, actually, it's just going to be easier for me to lose what's distinctive about being a Christian. I'm just going to actually look like everyone else and act like everyone else and I'm going to talk like everyone else and I'm going to joke like everyone else because to be honest, this Jesus stuff is just too hard and so we conform. For others of us, there's a temptation not to conform but subtly different to privatise our faith. Jesus, I still love you. I still believe in you, but it's a bit too hard for me to live out my faith in the world. And so I'm going to think of Christianity more of an inner religious experience just between you and me. And our faith stops affecting our lives. Either way, there's a pressure to fit in. So what does Peter say to that? What does Peter say to that? Well, Peter says you've got to fight that urge with everything you have. He he, he actually says, I urge you. He says, I urge you, not I suggest, not I politely request. I urge you, please abstain from those fleshly desires which wage war against your soul. He says, this is warfare. We used to be on the old life to say no to the things that if we're honest, it was easier to live that way than to live for Jesus. To say no to that is war. It's painful, it's costly, it's serious. And Peter calls us not just to say no to temptation, but he says, abstain. He says, abstain from the fleshly things which wage war against your soul. He says, don't even entertain it. Abstain, stay far from it. Don't even entertain it. Don't flirt with it. Don't think about it. Don't, don't wonder to yourself, what would life be like if I wasn't following Jesus? Think about the women I could be with. Think about the extra money I'd have if I didn't have to give it to the church the whole time. Think about the way I could have spoken to that person the way I really wanted to and let them have it. No, Peter says, no, don't entertain those things because they're dangerous. They wage war against your soul. You've been in that pit before and there's nothing left in there apart from death. Don't go back. Don't go back to that place. We must not fade into the background. We've been there before. And Jesus has pulled us out of that pit. We must not fade into the background. Because under pressure, some of us just want to curl up into a ball. But if we're honest, under pressure, some of us don't do that. Some of us roll up our sleeves and say, come on then, let's have you. And yes, Peter says we must fight the the war that goes against our soul, but he doesn't say we fight our neighbors. He doesn't say we fight the world around us as humans. Paul says in Ephesians that the enemy isn't flesh and blood. Peter actually says quite the opposite. Fight against the temptation to go back to your old life, abstain. But he doesn't say fight the people. He says keep your conduct honorable. He says act in a way that they might see your good deeds. Peter says that we aren't, as Christians, called to be aggressively defensive. We're not called to be the ones who win the arguments. We're not there to be proved right. Coping with pressure to conform shouldn't lead us to be argumentative or belittling or defensive. But if we're honest, actually, when we're backed into a corner, it's quite hard not to react. It's quite hard for some of us not to say, well, I've I've got to protect myself somehow. So when the pressure comes, if we aren't meant to be pushed to fade into the background and conform, if we aren't meant to fight back and defend ourselves, what are we meant to do, Peter? (laughs) What are we meant to do? I loved maths at school, uh, but I neglected some of the other subjects. History wasn't my forte and now all I can do is listen to a history podcast because I think it's so interesting. Um, but geography was another area that I completely ignored at school. I thought, I don't understand this. I don't like it. Um, but uh, if you will humor me, I'm going to spend two minutes, probably very inaccurately, teaching you how volcanoes work. Does that sound okay? Yeah? <laughs> Great. I could have I brought in a papier-mâché volcano and done the whole experiment. That's a great experiment, isn't it? Most of us must have done that growing up when you've got a, what is it, bicarbonate? Anyway, use Mentos these days. Okay, volcanoes are formed when two massive pieces of rock, what they're called tectonic plates, they're huge, they're bigger than continents, That they, they come together. It's not the only way they're formed, but it's one of the ways. And they very slowly, usually over many, many, many years, they push into each other. And the pressure increases, and it increases, and it increases, until something gives way. And what happens is it explodes up gas and magma and lava and all these terrifying things. And so the pressure, when it gets too much, suddenly releases upwards. That's what happens when a volcano is formed. Not too controversial. Don't, if, you, if you're in secondary school, please don't tell your geography teachers that's the summary of volcanoes because that, that's probably not it. But that, that's how I understand volcanoes to work a little bit. My friends, when pressure comes, Peter calls us not to be pushed back into the background, not to roll up our sleeves and fight back, but to be a little bit like a volcano. When the pressure comes, we are to live our lives in such a way that we lift the eyes of the world around us to Jesus. In other words, and this is for you young adults over in this corner, we need to hashtag be more volcano, okay? Why, why aren't you already putting it on your social media feeds? I can't see any of you. Garrett, come on, put it on. Thank you, Garrett. Okay, we're going to trend. I'm going to be cool for once. Verse 12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We aren't to fade back. We aren't to fight back. Why? Because actually, what Peter is trying to teach the Christians here and what we need to learn is that he is calling us to a different way of life, not primarily for our own sake, but for the sake of witness to the world. He's calling us to a different way of living, not primarily for our own sake, but for the sake of witness to the world. And he says, when the pressure comes, we want to live in such a way that we lift the eyes of those around us to Jesus so, they may see your good deeds. And God willing, they themselves will glorify God. So, as I said, over the next few um, passages, both this week and then the, ne- the next few passages, we're going to see Peter start to apply that principle to many different areas of first century Greco Roman Christian experience. Okay? We're going to see Peter apply the hashtag be more volcano into different situations. Uh, that that were prevalent in the church at the time. That were were the common experience. He's going to speak to slaves in their Roman households, in their pagan households. What does it mean to be a Christian in your context? He's going to speak to Christian wives of pagan husbands. What does it look like in that very difficult situation to follow and trust Jesus and be a witness to the world? Interestingly, did you know that uh, Christianity uh, in the early days was insulted as being the religion of women and slaves? That was the insult. And Peter so wonderfully directly addresses these marginalised groups and says, no, you're a valued, central part of the church. And so we're going to see that over the next few weeks. But in these next verses today, Peter will speak about a context that is relevant to every believer, both then and now. And it's a, in this context, we probably think it's so boring, but it, it couldn't be further from the truth because it sounds boring until you realise that Souls are at stake. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus is at stake. And it's what does it look like to be just good members of society? What does it look like to, to be a witness to Jesus at the school gate, around the family dinner table, in the office, with your government? What does it look like to be a believer? What does it be like to be more volcano in civil society? That's the question. So let's carry on reading the passage and see how Peter answers that more specific application. So from verse 13 Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance. Of foolish people. So what does it mean to be more volcano in civil society in, in the wider community that we're part of then and now? Well, we remember that Peter says, first and foremost, our relationship with the world is that we're, we're sojourners, we're exiles, we're, we're foreigners, we're people who don't belong here. We belong to him, but we don't belong here. Um, in other words, we need to see ourselves as visitors, temporary residents, or maybe another way of thinking about it, is we're guests. As Christians in our communities, we're guests. And I think what Peter's doing here is he's calling us to be exemplary, wonderful guests in our communities. I have a friend uh, who, I won't disclose who this is, who when he was uh, 18 years old, he uh, was having dinner with his girlfriend's family and that is a context which is very important to be a good dinner guest, isn't it? Uh, and I think this is an example of exemplary behavior. So my dear friend uh, was sitting at the table having a very nice conversation, you know, dressed appropriately, ha- having a good, a good chat with mum and dad. Uh, and halfway through the meal, he says, could you excuse me for a second? And the dad says, yeah, of course. And so he got up, he popped outside. Three seconds later, he comes back in. They carry on the conversation. And uh, his dad, uh, the dad of the girlfriend says after a while, confused. Why, why did you go outside? And he says, oh, I'm really sorry, I just needed to fart, and I didn't think it would be polite. I think that's an example of being an exemplary house guest. No? Okay. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know um, the couple are now married, um, and, so, and the parents approve. Um, in first century Rome, it wasn't easy to be a Christian. In first century Rome, it was not easy to be Christian. Now, a little bit later on from when Peter wrote, the government would sponsor widespread killing of Christians. But even now, in Peter's day, if you were a Christian, you could expect to be seen with suspicion, hated, sometimes violence done against you, but definitely slandered or reviled. But even in Peter's day, in this context of hostility, this pressured environment, Peter calls brothers and sisters in Christ, he calls the believers to be exemplary guests and visitors in their community. In this context of hostility, Peter tells them, look, there are secular governors, there are rulers, and and their job is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's what he says in verse 14. And then what does he say in verse 15? He says, Christians... You guys are the ones who are meant to do good. You guys are meant to be the ones who are seen by society and praised for doing good. The governors come to judge and they're secular governors, but you're the ones who are meant to be praised for doing good. For this is the will of God, verse 15. For this is the will of God to do good. That's what he's saying. And so as followers of Jesus, he calls them and he calls us now today to leave society better than we found it. We're foreigners. We don't belong here. We don't belong here, and so we don't conform to the world. We don't take part in the sinful things the world is doing, but we do love the world. We show them kindness. We, we show the grace of God to them. We don't just avoid doing bad. We don't just hide and hope we get through this life quietly, waiting for a better life to come. But we say, what does it look like to do visible public good that the name of Jesus might be held up high in this place? So what might it look like to be exemplary houseguests for us in modern, secular Britain? Well, maybe we can ask questions like this. Do we extend grace to our neighbours when that fence or that building project is actually starting to get quite awkward? Do we encourage our kids' teachers at parents' evenings, even though we know that they probably could have done better? Do we give time to volunteer in our community? Or well, here's one. Do we disagree well with people? I think that's a real challenge. I think we live in a community, we live in a society now, which cannot disagree well. If we disagree, we must hate each other. If we disagree, we must therefore you know, be opposite sides of any equation. But as Christians, we must learn how to do this better. We must be those who are able to love those who even hate us. So we don't jump on social media and start backbiting or trying to cancel the second we're offended by something we see. We must be those instead who forgive, who turn the other cheek, who explain our position carefully, thoughtfully, respectfully, as we'll read in chapter 3 next time. We do that, but then we're also at peace when those people we were trying to explain our beliefs to throw it back in our face. We must say sorry when we get it wrong. And we must accept someone's apology and not hold a grudge against them. We must be those, as Christians, who can disagree well. Because, my goodness, that will shine like a star in the culture we live in. In a culture that cannot disagree. Who says that tolerance is one of the biggest things that it holds up as a value. But there is no such thing as tolerance in most of the discourses of our time. Can we, as Christians, both disagree and disagree in love with people? I think that would be a profound witness if we, and as we learn to do that more and more. For me, I, I used to be writing software. I used to be in an office context. I had friends, I had colleagues. They watched my life. They commented on my life. They occasionally laughed at my God, mainly lighthearted stuff, but they did laugh at my God and my beliefs. And my goodness, they told me that's not very Christian when I did something that wasn't very Christian. And so I had people who were looking into my life They were seeing, what kind of life does this Christian fellow live? And I realised that as I left that context to work for the church, I started to allow myself to be in a bit of a bubble. I started to allow myself to actually not really engage with the world around me. That's not okay. And I thank God that there have been a number of contexts, even in recent weeks and months, as Beth and I are preparing for a baby to arrive, that we've started to get to know other expectant parents who believe very different things to us, who make decisions in very different ways, Ways to us, but who Jesus loves and wants to come to Himself, and we pray that that would be the case, because we aren't called to hide to to hide away. We're not called to fade into the background, but to do visible public good. Some of you are probably thinking, "My goodness, Luke, you're just banging on about. I need to do good. I need to be better. That sounds like dead religion to me." Ah, but before um, you start picking up your pitchforks, let's remember. Dead religion is an attitude of the heart. It's not a set of actions. So why is Peter telling us to do good in the society? Why is he? Peter calls us to be excellent visitors, house guests, that by doing good, verse 15, that by doing good, you might silence the ignorance of foolish talk, of foolish people. In other words, just as he said earlier, by the public lives that we live, those who think Christians are evil, they're suspicious, they're, they're dangerous, they're bigoted, they will have to actually be quiet about that. Not because you win the argument, but because they see the life you live and realise, oh, it's not true. As Christians, when we have a reputation that says actually we are the ones who do love who do sacrifice, who do good for the society that we're in, it will start to silence the accusations, the rumours, and the gossip that goes around about us. Now, that's not saying that persecution will end. Actually, Peter says quite clearly as he goes on in chapter 3 that some people will persecute you even for doing good. But Peter does say that this is a powerful witness to the world when we do good and it is worth the cost. Living lives for the good of others might be one thing. Maybe we can accept that. But submitting to authority. Oh my goodness. Submission is an ugly word, isn't it? Submission is an ugly word outside the church. And let's be honest, inside the church. And so hearing Peter say, be subject to human institutions, be subject to the emperor as supreme, be subject to governors around, be, be subject or submit is the same word in Greek. Oh, That gets, starts to get a bit uncomfortable. And for good reason, to be honest. Because when we hear be subject, we hear lack of freedom. We hear oppression, silence, injustice. And so many of us might think, look, Peter might have been saying that then, but surely he can't mean that now. Surely that's not appropriate that we, we're subject to our government, that we, you know, that we, we do good in, in that context. But we do have to remember Peter's context too. He didn't have any of the freedoms of modern democracy. He didn't have a vote. Christians didn't have a political voice. And yet even in that context, Peter calls them to be subject. He calls them to be subject. Now, not without limits. It's clear in one Peter and it's clear elsewhere that our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus. If anyone ever tells us to disobey Jesus, we respectfully disobey them. We never disobey Jesus. But apart from that, Peter does say, For the sake of showing Jesus to the world, for that reason, we must be exemplary residents, even to our government. Because we can be flipping about these things. Paying cash in hand, because then we don't need to pay the VAT. Speeding between cameras, because we know we can get away with it. No, Peter would say, that gives Christians a reputation, but not a good one. Not one that honours Christ, But remember, Peter isn't saying this to lay down a heavy law. Actually, he can say this so strongly because his view of submission is so different to ours, and it's so different because his view of freedom is so different. What does verse 16 say? Live as people who are free. What? You've just been telling me, submit to this person, submit to that person. What do you mean, live as people who are free, Peter? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter totally subverts the concept of submission by fully understanding the concept of freedom. You see, the world says freedom is doing what you want. It's doing what you want, when you want, how you want. It's, it's having no restrictions. It's having no one telling you what to do. But that is no freedom at all. That isn't the freedom that Jesus offers us because that freedom always comes at the cost of another. The freedom to go a bit too far in your night out is usually at the cost of your mate and at the cost of the taxi driver's car and maybe at the cost of the mental health of the security guard. The cost to lie on your, the freedom to lie on your CV is at the cost of the person who worked hard for that job. The freedom to stay up till 3 a.m. binging Netflix is at the cost of your family or your boss, who you're only half awake for, the next day. That freedom is no freedom at all. Actually, that freedom, that so-called freedom, is the fleshly things that are waging war against your soul that Peter says, please, please don't go back to them because he knows there is a much better freedom. The freedom that Jesus offers is a much better freedom. True freedom is freedom to finally live lives of righteousness that God saved us for. Do you know, as Christians, we're the only ones who have the ability to live righteously Because Jesus has won us to that. True freedom is the freedom from condemnation. It's freedom from guilt. It's freedom from shame. True freedom is the freedom to please God. Incredible. We have the freedom to please God, to live for him, even to be his servant. Peter understands freedom so dramatically in God that he can say, live as free people. By being servants to God. Live as those who God has given you every freedom so that now you can do the one thing that he actually finally called you to, which is to live for him. Because with this definition of true freedom, it completely changes submission. It completely changes submission. Because submission isn't about fear or lack of agency. We don't submit because we're coerced or we're pressured into it, but we submit freely out of a desire to live our lives for Jesus and to show him to the world. It'll be costly. It won't be easy. But we choose to live our lives now in light of eternity that the world might see him. And so with our freedom... We live as exemplary visitors, house guests in our society. We go out of our way to care for our neighbours, to volunteer at the kids' school. We're, We're honest with our bosses, even though they've taken the credit for that thing again. But okay, we're going to extend grace to them. Because, my friends, we are called to live exemplary lives in the world for the sake of witness, the good news of going forth. And so we ask ourselves, am I willing to give up what many would perceive as freedom for the sake of the gospel. We're coming into land. We've got to be more volcano. When the pressure comes, when the pressure comes from, from those who see that we're Christians and they don't like it in all different ways, when the pressure comes, we don't fade into the background. We don't fight them back and defend ourselves, but we allow our lives to lift The eyes of others to Jesus, and so we live exemplary lives as brilliant guests of a society of the society we're in. Not out of fear, not out of coercion, not out of necessity, but out of a desire to show Jesus to the world. But as we think about witness, there's actually a bigger reason we do it. Verse seventeen ends like this: Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. My friend's in in the world of TV. He writes TV shows and he told me something I didn't know, which is people fight in their contracts over money, uh, over title and over where your credit is. In, in the credits at the end sequence. And people, of course, fight to be either the first, sometimes they fight to be the last, because in, in our culture, we value the things that are first or last in list. In Jewish writing, it's often the thing in the middle of a list, which is the pinnacle. And so it is here. Peter gives a little list where the most important things are right there in the centre. We honour everyone. Yep, that's on one end. We, we honour the emperor. That's what we've been talking about all this morning. We do those things. But what's at the heart of what Peter's calling us to? We love the brotherhoods, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But more than anything, we do all this out of fear of God. Fear that Tom so wonderfully helped describe to us a few weeks ago. Not fear as in cowering uh, fear of punishment, but out of a reverent worship of this is the God of all creation. That indescribable we sang about earlier. It is all to the glory of God we do this. We don't just witness to try and tick a list. We don't do it as one of our five a day of being a Christian. We do it because Jesus has transformed us and we are motivated to say, I, I want to show him to the world even though I know it is costly. It's how Peter ends, but it's how Peter began, remember? Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will. They may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God. They glorify God on the day of visitation. Because you see, as we choose to lay down our desires and our preferences, we follow in the footsteps of our Lord. That's what Rachel will unpack for us next week in the wonderful next passage. But we follow in his footsteps because Jesus, though, though he was God himself, he gave up his glory for a time to become like us to become human, to come in the vulnerability of being a child, the dependence of being a baby, then as a man, he suffered for wrongs he did not partake in. He was slandered for things he did not say and he was put to death for crimes he never committed. He never rose up in violence. He never mocked or belittled to win cheap points. But Christ suffered for you. Christ did good for us. And so, as we're called to follow in his footsteps, as we're called to live like he did, we don't do it to pay him back. We never could do that. But to show the world what we ourselves have seen that he's good, that he's wonderful that he's the only answer, that Christ is the one who brings wholeness when there is only shattered pieces of our hearts that were sprayed out, hidden inside of us. When we see that ourselves, we are motivated to say, I'm willing to show him to the world. And I'm willing for these light momentary afflictions of this life May it be one year or 40 years or 80 years or 120 years that I will live even though it will be costly for him. I'm willing to suffer for his sake, not to pay him back. I can never do that. But because I've seen something that I'm desperate that the world will see too. We're going to take communion now. We're going to then go into a time of praising God with our voices, but we worship first and foremost. The response of every message, of every sermon, should be to win our hearts again for what Christ has done for us, and it is him who has won us. So as we rustle around and we take the little bit of bread out of the top, as we take the wine, this is a precious meal that Jesus calls all who believe in him to take part of. This is something we do all together as a church family. If this is new to you, if you're exploring faithful service, don't worry. Um, feel free to come chat to me about it at the end. But this is something we do as believers. And so as we take communion together, let me read you a few verses from chapter one again. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not were perishable things like gold or silver but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We were ransomed by his blood. We were saved by his cross. It was Jesus who did good to us and now calls us on his behalf and as his body to do good in the world he has called us to. Amen.